The following episode contains nonspecific references to physical and possible sexual assault. It's a damp night in Victorian London. You're on your way home heading south from your serving job to the rural outskirts of the sooty city. Through the haze of fog and coal smoke, a brief flash of light, perhaps a night watchman's lamp, catches your eye. As you approach, a figure begins to be seen. Facing away from you, it appears a man with a long cloak. He, or it, turns to face you. At first glance, he seems dapperly dressed, but the peculiar nature of his outfit becomes clearer as he comes closer. Under the dark cloak, his pants and vest appear to be shimmering white, and he dons a strange helmet of some sort on his head. Suddenly, his eyes begin to glow unnaturally, and his outstretched arms reveal what look like clawed hands. You're frozen in fear as he vomits forth bright blue flame at you, singeing the edges of your coat. His clawed hands briefly paw at your arms and neck, and just before you feel yourself growing faint, a policeman rounds the corner of the nearby alley, lantern held aloft, and shouts, You there! Unhand her! To which the demonic being assaulting you turns, startled, then just as abruptly, unexpectedly, and unbelievably... It leaps up into the air, at least nine feet onto the rooftop. Its horrible eyes still glowing, cape fluttering on the wind. It glares back at you once more before bounding off into the fog and smog. In shock, you collapse to the cobblestone street as the policeman throws his heavy coat over your shoulders. Turning to face him, you can see as he stares off in the direction of the leaping demon that he is just as baffled as you are. Who was that wicked leaping monster? We'll find out in this episode of Monsters in My Podcast. Welcome to Monsters in My Podcast, Episode 2, Spring-Heeled Jack. I'm Sean McGee, and I'll be guiding you through the rumors, legends, and histories of everything monstrous from all over the world and through all time and story origin. Each month, I'll be doing a deep-dive look into one specific monster, exploring not just the tales of encounters with them or the stories from which they began, but also the cultural context, deeper psychological and societal implications, and always the evolution of how a monster comes to be, how myths change through time and even live on in popular culture. And in terms of tracking the path from urban legend to rumor to pop cultural horror icon, Spring Hill Jack is a perfect example of this folkloric metamorphosis. In a similar vein to last episode's monster, the Japanese yokai Kuchisake Ona, or the Slipmouth Woman, this haunter of Victorian England is a relatively modern beast, in relation to humanity's long history of monster sightings and myth-making. The legend of spring Jack officially begins, according to police and newspaper reports, in the fall of 1837, on the country fringes of Victorian London, on the spatial border of rural and urban settings, 
and the historic cusp of pre-industrial and post-industrial Europe. As we'll soon see, the transitory space in both time and region will define the shifting nature of the descriptions of Springheel Jack over his relatively brief career of terrorizing the English working classes. Class itself will also play a major role in the creation, dissemination, and imitation of this jumping marauder. While many varying and contradictory descriptions abound about our vaulting terror, that one detail, the ability to, in the words of another man in a cape, leap tall buildings in a single bound, ties them all together. This monster can jump. As for the superhero connection, we will explore that a little later. But first, let's take a look at Springheel Jack's criminal record. Reports of Springheel Jack's encounters, at least those well-documented, run from 1837 to about 1904. Earlier reports on the outskirts of London describe a ghostly bear or bull or other animal capable of transforming into human form. But as Carl Bell suggests in his comprehensive book, The Legend of Springheel Jack, Victorian Urban Folklore and Popular Culture, these have most likely been retconned, which literally means retroactive continuity, where connected uh, after the fact to later reports of a leaping, caped, phosphorus-breathing, glowing-eyed demon man of London's back alleys. They most likely were entirely unrelated originally. Still, this is a key element in the function of myth-making. Just as in the comic book world, authors of sci-fi and fantasy today retcon characters in the canon or lore of their worlds, so does society, from the townsfolk to the media, in this case newspapers in their early and rather sensational youth. If one chooses to retain these metamorphic animal-to-human forms as part of the Spring-Heeled Jack rumor lineage, it is notable that in rural settings he would appear to be a shapeshifter taking animal form, while in urban settings he seems to prefer keeping an anthropomorphic humanoid form, complete with clothing and cape, showing the way that, once again, myths evolve to the particular setting. The first well-documented encounter in London and one of the more lurid ones happened to Mary Stevens, a young servant girl on her way home from work, when an odd figure leapt out at her from the shadows, grabbing her arms, ripping her clothes to grope her with what she described as claws. When she screamed at the assault, he leapt away into the night. In that same area, the following night, a carriage driver was startled by the sight of a similar-looking creature and toppled off his seat as the being bounded off into the night as had become his signature calling card exit. In this urban industrial setting, accounts of Spring Hill Jack soon multiplied, and with newspapers reporting claims as fact, the rumors spread like wildfire. Just before the two most well-covered attacks, the mayor of London released a statement that would propel Spring Hill Jack into the realm of conspiracy, and a conspiracy rooted in the tensions between the working class and aristocratic upper class. On January 9th, 1938, he shared a complaint that he received from an anonymous citizen of Peckham, a small district in the south of London. It appears that some individuals of, as the writer believes, the highest ranks of life, have laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion that he durst not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near London in three different guises, a ghost, a bear, and a devil and moreover, that he will not enter a gentleman's garden for the purpose of alarming the inmates of the house. Uh, 
The wager has, however, been accepted, and the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven ladies of their senses, two of whom are not likely to recover, but to become burdens to their families. At one house the man rang the bell, and on the servant coming to open the door, this worse-than-brute stood in no less dreadful figure than a spectre clad most perfectly. The consequence was that the poor girl immediately swooned, and has never from that no moment been in her senses. That affair has now been going on for some time, and strange to say, the papers are still silent on the subject. The writer has reason to believe that they have the whole history at their fingers' ends, but through interested motives, are induced to remain silent. This statement uh, revealed that prior to this moment, Spring Hill Jack, while having crossed over from rural to urban settings, had not yet seemed to breach the upper classes, living mostly in the word of mouth of servants and city laborers and gaining further notoriety in the sensational but certainly not so well-respected news rags of the day. Victorian England is a unique time, though, when it comes to class and the paranormal. While the ascension of Queen Victoria was hailed by many as a signal of a more enlightened, rational age of reason, wealth disparity, and the stark difference in quality of life between the lower and lower classes put a strain on this, and the relation between those who did the work and those who owned the land, factories, and titles. Add to this the condescension towards superstitions and the ghost stories of the poor masses, and the hypocrisy of the very same upper-class critics being very prone to superstitions of their own, although repackaged as pseudoscience or the revitalization of occult interests such as secret societies like the Freemasons, and eventually Madame Blavatsky's precursor to our modern New Age obsession, Theosophy. And you can see a unique dichotomy between high versus low superstition. This distinction was entirely set by the upper classes and is similar to the kind of distinction between high and low art, which we'll see uh, later on in this episode. For the rural or working classes, folkloric traditions and ghost stories were still quite common, while the upper classes tended toward the lure of spiritualism, paying lots of money to mediums and attending seances while scoffing at the boogeyman of the working workers, including our demonic jumper, spring Jack. So the possibility of a group of bored elites banding together to, rather viciously, prank the vulnerable poor of London, preying on their fear of this rumored legendary villain by dressing up as him and staging nightly attacks, doesn't seem so far-fetched. On a much darker note, such a mythology may have provided the perfect cover for young, wealthy men wishing to assault women on the street and escape notice thanks to this urban legend. This wouldn't be the first time that we'll find traces of a twisted version of a Scooby-Doo reveal, where the real monster turns out to be, in fact, human. In fact, for a while, the Marquis of Waterford, a noble known for drunken carousing and occasional brawling, was rumored to be one of the copycats pretending to be the high-jumping demon to harass working-class folks, particularly young women, but was later cleared of suspicion. Now, whether that clearance was achieved by investigative work or the passing of bribes is left to speculation. The two best documented attacks occurred in the winter of 1948 to Lucy Scales and Jane Alsop. In effect, the extensive higher profile coverage that these two incidents provoked are what propelled spring Jack to nationwide fame, soon to enter into the pop culture of the day. The first, occurring on the night of the 19th of February, is notable as it plays off the notoriety of the character, 
perhaps leading credence to the idea of a hoax or some kind of imitator. We'll delve into this encounter after this short break. Today's episode is brought to you by Dare Danger Dan. Would you like to see Buffy the Vampire Slayer taking on Goombas in the Mushroom Kingdom? How about my pet monster chasing Teddy Ruxpin through the forest from the animated film The Hobbit? Medusa riding on an aquatic pegasus in a fight with Nikolai Tesla? How about a Sasquatch? If any of these spooky and ridiculous scenarios intrigue you, then you desperately need Danger Dan. Dare Danger Dan is a weekly live art show where you can suggest topics and situations for Dan to draw on the spot. Catch him live weekly and pitch an idea on twitch.tv slash daredangerdan or watch previous episodes on YouTube at dphilipstudios and on Instagram at IamDangerDan. Now back to spring Jack. What follows is the testimony given at the Lambeth Street Police Station reported in the Morning Chronicle the morning after the incident. Miss Jane Alsup stated that at about quarter to nine o'clock on the preceding night, she heard a violent ringing at the gate in front of her house, and on going to the door to see what was the matter, she saw a man standing outside, of whom she inquired what was the matter, and requested he would not ring so loud. The person instantly replied that he was a policeman, and said, For God's sake, bring me a light, for we have caught Springheel Jack here in the lane. She returned into the house and brought a candle, and handed it to the person who appeared enveloped in a large cloak, and whom she at first really believed to be a policeman. The instant she had done so, however, he threw off his outer garment, and applied the lighted candle to his breast, presented a most hideous and frightful appearance, and vomited forth a quantity of blue and white flames from his mouth, as his eyes resembled red balls of fire. From the hasty glance which her fright enabled her to get at his person, she observed that he wore a large helmet, and his dress, which appeared to fit him very tight, appeared to her to resemble white oilskin. Without uttering a sentence, he darted at, and catching her, partly by her dress and the back part of her neck, placed her hand under one of his, and commenced tearing her gown with his claws, which she was certain were some metallic substance. She screamed out as loud as she could for assistance, and by considerable exertion got away from him, and ran towards the house to get in. Her assailant, however, followed her and caught her on the steps leading to the hall door, when he again used considerable violence, tore her neck and arms with his claws, as well as a quantity of hair from her head. But she was at length rescued from his grasp by one of her sisters. Miss Alsop added that she had suffered considerably all night from the shock that she had sustained, and was then in extreme pain both from the injury done to her arms and the wounds and scratches inflicted by the miscreant about her shoulders and neck, by his claws or fangs. This assault spawned the first full-scale investigation of the perpetrator or perpetrators that might be behind Spring-Heeled Jack attacks, with local fundraising springing up to assist in the hunt. The professionals involved in the investigation easily dismissed any of the seemingly supernatural elements of the description of the attacker, owing these to her state of shock and assuming any oddity of appearance was due to the attacker being wildly intoxicated. Of course, don't believe the victim. 
Just nine days after the attack on Jane Alsop, the second most publicized incident happened to 18-year-old Lucy Scales and her sister on the way back from visiting her brother, who worked as a butcher in Limehouse. Walking in front of her sister, she sighted a cloaked figure, and when he approached, he also spewed a, a, forth a torrent of blue flame at her, whereupon she dropped to the ground, briefly blinded, and seized by violent fits for several more hours. Hearing the screams of the two girls, their brother, who was still nearby, ran to rescue them, but by that point, Jack, or whatever it was. After these stories received widespread coverage in the local and national papers, The Legend of Spring Hill Jack made its leap from urban folklore to popular culture. Victorian England, with the revival of superstition as spiritualism and the growing fascination with horror stories, indeed a golden age of the literary Gothic novel, from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to eventually Bram Stoker's Dracula, had an insatiable appetite for the brutal and the uncanny, both categories, at which Spring Hill Jack excelled. At first being mentioned in songs and renaming the devil character in the body and decidedly working-class puppet shows of Punch and Judy. But spring Jack made his big fictional debut in the short sensational horror stories, usually printed in a small pamphlet style, similar to early 20th century American comic books, known as Penny Dreadfuls. Carl Bell even posits a deeper connection between the two mediums, in, as in W. Travers' spring Jack, or A Felon's Wrong, in which the leaping demon was reimagined as a kind of masked vigilante, a costumed hero striking terror into the hearts of criminals under cover of darkness and outside of the jurisdiction of the law. When you consider Jack's dark outfit and cape as an analog to Batman, and that Victorian England, a dark, oppressive industrial metropolis with rampant crime in which a ruling class often turned a blind eye to the poor, could easily be a real-life inspiration for DC's Gotham City. Then Carl Bell's assertion that spring Jack may very well have been a Victorian prototype for superheroes doesn't seem so far-fetched at all. In the late 1800s, sightings did decrease, with some local ghost stories being attributed to spring Jack, but with few similarities to any of the more notable encounters. It seemed that the moniker had just become a fading label that could be easily applied to any paranormal occurrence whatsoever. Jack did live on, however, for some time in the popular culture, but being depicted more and more as a misunderstood philanthropist, albeit a bit of a weirdo, once again, not unlike Bruce Wayne, eventually becoming the go-to boogeyman for English parents to frighten their kids to bed, a technique I've always found to be a bit counterproductive. In so many ways, the legend of spring Jack is the perfect example for the organic way mythical creatures travel and evolve through the culture that spawns them, from a beast to a demon to a cape crusader human to the star of plays and penny dreadfuls, finally to being the monster under the bed. Our theme music is by Dan Gross, sound effects and ambiance by yours truly, and promotional art by Danger Dan Dubois. We're still working on the Patreon, and I'll let you know when that's up and running. But you can always leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Go ahead and rate the show. That's always greatly appreciated. But leaving a review is the stuff of true legends. You can also check us out at Monsters in My Podcast on Instagram. And if you're feeling generous, you can pitch in financially at I Am Sean's Cash in the Cash app. Thank you for listening. 
And next episode, we will travel to the frozen forests of Nova Scotia and the Great Lakes region of the Midwest to track the greed and madness inspiring malevolent spirit known by the Algonquin First Nations people as the Wendigo. Join us next time on Monsters in My Podcast. <laughs>